Michigan's 1966 UFO History Revisited. And it's still not swamp gas, with special guest Raymond Shemansky. Episode 11 of the Michigan UFO Sightings and Paranormal Encounters podcast. It's not a good day to be a bad guy! Hello and welcome everyone to the podcast. I am your host Wayne along with my lovely co-host and wife Michelle. Hey there. Coming to you from the glacial dumping grounds known as the Michigan Basin where we cover such topics as UFOs, aliens, conspiracy theories, paranormal encounters, ghosts, the Michigan Dog Band, Bigfoot, and all things paranormal and strange in and around Michigan. Hello everyone and welcome back to the podcast. Hello everybody. Hey, we got a great show for you today. I know I say that every time, but today is amazing because we're going to go and we're going to rewrite Michigan UFO history. And if you want this closure, you want the real story, this is it. It's like a time travel machine back to 1966. All right. So we want to once again give a big thank you to everyone who is sharing and spreading the word about the podcast. Again, we continue to grow every week. It's amazing. We really, really appreciate everything that everybody is doing to help the podcast and sending in your stories. Yes, please send in your stories. We're hoping for every podcast to have a communication corner where we're going to read your story on the podcast and uh, put it out there for everybody to hear. And do not be afraid. I will change your name in the story. Yes, absolutely. We are going to make sure that your identities stay protected. If you have a story you would like to tell, we would like to talk to you. You can reach out to us at mi.ufo.podcast at gmail.com. Send us a brief summary of your experience and we'll contact you to discuss things further and try to get you or your story on the podcast. Also, our merch store is now active. If you wish to support the podcast and wear some pretty cool swag, please make your way over to our merch store and check it out. Links to our store can be found in the show notes, on our Facebook pages, and in the podcast description. All right, Michelle, since I'm excited to get us to our special guest for tonight, why don't we go ahead and do that thing that we do? It is What's in the News. Yes, What is in the News? Well, at the time of this recording, it is a very special time. So I just want to say, Michelle, happy 74th anniversary. Now, you're definitely going to have to explain this to our listening audience because uh we have not been married that long and it is marking a special day in history it is at the time of the recording of this podcast it was july 8th and back in 1947 on july 8th the roswell incident took place and that is when the roswell daily record had the headline R-A-A-F captures flying saucer on ranch in Roswell region. And that kicked off 
the modern day UFO conspiracies. So days after something shiny crashed in the New Mexico desert, the Roswell Army Airfield issues a press release that says the military has recovered the remains of a flying disc. Although quickly discounted as erroneous, the announcement lays the groundwork for one of the most enduring UFO stories of all times. But we know that it was simply weather balloons. Oh, jeez. Well, you know, and it's important that we bring this up in the anniversary up because it really is the the first part of tonight's discussion with Ray Shmansky. Yes, because it was believed that this wreckage was taken to Wright-Patterson Air Force Base in Ohio, where Ray actually worked. So he's got a lot of background to this. That's really going to be it for the news today. I think uh, we should really just get into this interview right after our shout outs. What do you think? That sounds good to me. Let's start tonight by giving a shout out to our friends at the Midnight Truck Stop hosted by Big T and Blue Knight. A very cool couple of guys with a great concept as they explore those strange and unexplained incidents that so many of us have experienced while traveling along desolate highways. Give them a listen as they collect stories from all around the country from truckers and travelers alike. And then we're going to jump across the pond to the UK and give a shout out to Phenomena Magazine, the world's most recognized e-zine of its kind. The magazine investigates the whole realm of the strange, profound, unknown, and unexplained. They delve into the paranormal, UFOs, parapsychology, and even Fortean events. The magazine can be downloaded for free every month in a PDF format. Check out the show notes for a link to the magazine. We will also be featured in an upcoming issue of the e-zine, so stay tuned for more information on that. Let's also not forget the Lost in the Dark podcast, hosted by Burton and Aaron. This is a pretty cool podcast that bills itself as an attempt to capture incredible conversations between best friends as we explore all of our passions, but especially music and the world of heavy metal. So if you're into paranormal investigations and loud heavy metal music, give them a listen. Strong language, but it's heavy metal and the paranormal. What else would you expect? And then we're going to go over to Cosmographia, the Randall Carlson podcast. It is their mission to investigate and document the catastrophic history of the world and the evidence of advanced knowledge in early cultures. You will also learn of the profound effect it has had on human civilization, both past and future, its relevance to Earth herself, and how to successfully cope with the inevitable changes that are sure to visit our dynamic geocosmic system. And finally, we have Unquestionable with Calvin Smith. It's a show about asking the real questions we all need to know. Are aliens visiting Earth? Was 9-11 an inside job? Is there a God? Is Bigfoot out there? These are all questions he asks and tries to get some answers to with the help of his listening audience. Join him as he digs deep into a rabbit hole each week and examines those questions to determine whether history needs to be rewritten. Calvin challenges the modern day narrative by questioning the unquestionable. All right. Those are the shout outs for this week. And Michelle, I think we should take a quick break. What do you think? It's time to hear from our sponsors. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot. 
Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. All right, Michelle, before we jump into this awesome interview, why don't you tell us a little bit about our guest tonight? Award-winning author and researcher Raymond Shemansky is the acknowledged expert on the Wright-Patterson Air Force Base and its alien connections. In his first book, Alien Shades of Grace, Evidence of Extraterrestrial Visitation to Wright-Patterson Air Force Base and Beyond, Raymond reveals compelling photographic evidence and research that supports long-held rumors of Wright-Patterson's alien involvement. Forty years of employment at the fabled Air Force Base has given Raymond unique access to locations and individuals providing a treasure trove of tantalizing information, including revelations on men in black, alien burial sites, and the elusive Hangar 18. In his second book of the Alien Shades of Grace trilogy, Victoria's Secret Truth, Raymond presents an in-depth, convincing two-year case study for close encounters of the seventh kind that crosses multiple generations of the same family. Therein, Raymond shares all the evidence that includes medical, clinical, photographic, audio, and video, which will allow the reader to arrive at unavoidable conclusions regarding possible alien contact. And the final entry in the trilogy is Swamp Gas, My Ass, the true exploits of two American heroes who intercepted the famous 1966 Michigan Swamp Gas UFO, an interplanetary visitor that government's officials tried to explain away as marsh gas. This and many other formerly secret military aviation history events are told through the recorded interviews and written memoirs of the two U.S. fighter interceptor pilots who lived them. Raymond has appeared anywhere from the History Channel to the Discovery Channel to 2019 UFO Megacon in Laughlin, Nevada. Raymond holds a bachelor's in electrical and electronics engineering from the University of Detroit from 1975. In 1983, he completed his graduate studies in computer engineering at Wright State University. From 1983 to 1993, he led the ADA Joint Program Office's evaluation and validation team sponsored by the Undersecretary of Defense for Research and Engineering. He served two years as the first director of the Wright-Patterson Air Force Base Installation Civilian Wellness Program, impacting the lives of 12,000 base civilians. In addition to dozens of annual performance awards received in his distinguished career, Raymond has received two of the highest Air Force Civilian Awards, the Air Force Civilian Achievement Award and the Outstanding Civilian Career Service Award. In his spare time, he ran 16 marathons, including the 2010 and the 2015 Boston Marathon. He retired in 2011 as a senior engineer and scientist from the Air Force Research Laboratory at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. I am very excited to dig into this interview. We've been looking for an expert for a while on the 1966 UFO incident and cannot wait to dive into this. We are about to rewrite Michigan UFO history. 
So without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, it is with great honor and a privilege that we welcome to the podcast, Mr. Raymond Shemansky. Hey, thanks for having me. We have been looking for somebody who was an expert in the 1966 Michigan, Ann Arbor, Dexter area. I guess you would consider it a UFO flap. And my wife and I happened to find out about this by watching a movie that we ended up, or a documentary, I guess, that we ended up actually purchasing off of Amazon, which was Phenomenon or The Phenomenon. And it had made a quick mention of this huge thing that went down in Ann Arbor that as a 51-year-old person, you know, I was born in 1970, I had never ever heard of this. Nobody ever talked about it as I was growing up. Nobody ever uh, spoke about it. So when I saw this, I started digging into it, found out a lot by going through a lot of newspaper articles and things like that from the Ann Arbor Public Library. And uh, it only seemed like it scratched the surface, but it seemed like there was a lot of things that were going on. So we really wanted to get somebody on here that knew their stuff. And I happened to see an article that you were in on MLive, which is a Michigan magazine, and figured you were probably the best person to contact. So with all that leading into everything, can you tell our audience that may not be familiar with you a little bit about yourself and what made you decide to get into researching the 1966 Michigan UFO swamp gas incident? Okay, so you want to know a little bit about me. How much time do we have? As much as you want. Oh, great, because I got about 90 minutes of me. Um, <laughs> <laughs> why don't we we'll start at the beginning? Um, first of all, I am absolutely delighted to be on your show. And I can't say that about every host. Uh, you know, I've been on some shows multiple times, some shows, you know, just once. But I'm delighted because you are Michigan. And of course, my latest book, is about the 1966 UFO flap. And I have uh, an amazing disclosure to make uh, to you and uh, to your reading audience, to your, to your listening audience. Uh, I was born in Hamtramck. Oh, so hey. right in the heart of Detroit. Uh, I'm a, a Michigan guy. My, we lived on Woodlawn, which is the east side of Detroit, uh, just south of the city airport. I went to patronage of St. Joe's grade school, good Catholic school, and your last name ended in a vowel, okay? You were Provenzano, Vermiglio, uh, Milano, uh, Tobolsky, uh, Talaska, Scalisi, Szymanski. So it was a great mix of Polish, Italian. It was just a wonderful neighborhood to grow up in. And through the miracle of Facebook, I'm still in touch with a lot of guys. And in fact, my best buddy is Tony Milano. And I'll tell you how he kind of fits just incrementally in this story. Um, so grew up on the east side, went to De La Salle High School. I graduated from the University of Detroit in 1975 with a Bachelor of Science in Electronics and Electrical Engineering. So all, all east side. My grandfather was one of the founders of the United Auto Workers. And people want to check that out. They can look up Frank Shemansky in the archives, the UAW archives at uh, Wayne State University. Awesome. So a lot of east side in me. And um, 
in Detroit, growing up, I was maybe living about 20 miles from Selfridge Air Force Base, which is going to figure prominently in our discussion. And then after the riots happened, my dad said, I think we need to get out of here. So we moved to East Detroit, uh, which is now East Point, yep. and put us even closer to Selfridge and those jets that were breaking the sound barrier on occasion. I grew up in the shadow of Selfridge, right in Mount Clemens. So I was right there because uh, my dad was in the National Guard for a little bit after he got out of Vietnam and he was stationed there and he flew helicopters and things. So I was like right there and grew up in Mount Clemens to the age of 18 till I shipped out and went in the military. So, yeah, you're very familiar with that. We had the same stomping grounds. Oh, absolutely. Yep. I grew up right down the street from uh, downtown Mount Clemens and the Macomb County courthouse and all that. Yeah. Very fascinating. So, so we have, a, have that same kind of background there. Uh, very envious of the kids who live in Gross Point. <laughs> <laughs> of course. <laughs> of course. You know, my dad gave me a six pack when I graduated from high school and the, the, the kids in Gross Point got new Corvettes. Right, right. Just so the the listening audience can understand the difference. Right. Um, so anyway, um, I worked for 40 years at the legendary Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. Now, Wright-Patterson is where they took the Roswell crash wreckage in 1947. Yeah, and, that, you know, you bring that up, and that was down my list of, of questions was to ask you about what, what that was like to work there. And isn't that the location of the notorious uh, Hangar 18? Absolutely. And we're going to get awesome. there. Yes. We're going we're to cover all of this. And it really doesn't matter which direction we come in from. But I wanted to mention that today is a very important day historically, because on this date in 1947, the Roswell Daily Record, the local newspaper in Roswell, published a headline and it says, RAAF Roswell Army Airfield captures flying disc. And that happened today. Amazing. 74 years ago. So quite an auspicious occasion. And I think uh, our, our, you know, when we were planning this out, I knew it was close, but I had never really, you know, reacclimated myself with the date. So this is just absolutely perfect. So Wright Patterson, um, what I'm leading up to is to answer your question, how I got to investigating the 1966 UFO uh, out of southeastern Michigan. So the long way to get there is uh, first is to mention the fact that I was a senior engineer when I left Wright-Patterson and I had worked there for 38 years and nine months. So I had a lot of chance to snoop around, as it were, talk to people, investigate, kind of figure, poke my fingers around uh, to, to see what was true and what wasn't. So in 1947, there was this, this crash, and there are two key people here. There's General Thomas DuBose, who was the chief of staff in Fort Worth for the 8th Army Air Corps. The, the other person is Major Jesse Marcel. Now, in July of 1947, his base commander, Colonel Blanchard, sent him and another intelligence officer out to Corona, New Mexico, to pick up pieces of this crash saucer that a rancher by the name of Matt Brazel brought into town. So when they brought it back to, to Roswell, the guys there who knew what 
whether balloons were and what they weren't because they were the intelligence officers. That was their job to know what was flying. They had declared it something they'd never seen before. And then they published that, that article, we got a flying disc. As history shows, the next day, they shut it down. And the reason they shut it down is because the world descended upon the Air Force and, and wanted to know, hey, all about this disc. Well, back then, you only had teletype and telephone. And when those were getting clogged, the Air Force says, well, we can't communicate. We can't do our regular job. And that's to protect our airspace. You know, we just come out of World War II. We had the, the Russians to worry about and other enemies. And, you know, there was unexploded ordnance and all kinds of things were happening. So the Air Force said, we cannot afford to have our communication channels shut down. So they put a pin in, the, in it and, you know, the balloon story happened. And they kept that position for 74 years until last week, Friday. Well, in 1978, Jesse Marcel was interviewed by Stanton Friedman for the very first time, and he went on record and said, you know that stuff I picked up out of Corona, the stuff that we took to, to um, Fort Worth and made its way to Wright-Patterson? And he signed an affidavit, and he was videotaped saying it went to Wright-Pat. It wasn't of this earth. We tried to cut it, burn it, stomp it, bludgeon it, and we couldn't make a dent, and we couldn't affect it. Also, in his later years, the general who was chief of staff, through which that material came, it came to his office, in which Marcel was taking photographs, you know, of that real wrecked, wrecked weather balloon. The general said that material went to right pat. So it is immutable that whatever was captured went to Wright Patterson Air Force Base. And we know that as a fact. So in 1973, I'm a cooperative education student on loan to Wright-Patterson Air Force Base, my very first week away from home. University of Detroit had this very large um, co-op education program, and myself and three of my classmates took jobs at Wright-Pat, and we were going to work there for the next 90 days. I got assigned to an office, and the mentor they assigned me to, and whose desk I sat you know, his desk was behind mine, presumably so he could keep an eye on what I was doing. <laughs> his, his name was Al, and he was a mid-level engineer. And our office complex was actually a two-story building and about a 250-foot hangar whose doors were open to about 200 feet. And then attached was a image, a direct image of the other business office. So two-story office building, 250-foot hangar, two-story office building. Well, our office building did not have the greasy spoon, as he called it, the little coffee shop. And he said, it's your first week. I'm going to buy you this candy bar. So we go from the one office building into this very dark hangar. And we come down this little ramp. And he says, have you heard about our aliens? And I'm a co-op student, right? And 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 I am literally, I'm scared to death of Wright Patterson. I learned later, 8,000 acres, 600 buildings, military everywhere, people knocking themselves out with salutes and such. And it was just a totally different environment. Yeah, right. you're military, so you you kind of you kind of get that. Yeah. So so we're walking through this dark hangar, and I said, aliens? What what aliens? Well, in 1947, there was a crash. 
of a machine and the machine and the occupants were brought here for evaluation and examination. And I looked at him and I said, really? And he said, um, yeah, and, and they keep them in the tunnels. And I'm like, oh, you know, another revelation. We have tunnels? And he goes, yeah, we have tunnels everywhere, but the aliens are kept in the tunnels. I, I said, well, Al, um, can we go see these aliens in the tunnels? I figured, why bring it up if I'm not going to be able to see it, right? That's my thinking. And he goes, oh, I'm sorry. No, we can't. Okay, well, why not? Well, because it's a secret. Or is he well, messing with the new guy? Possibly. Possibly. So I said, uh, well, <laughs> Al, if it's a secret, how do you know about this? And he said, well, everybody kind of knows. And then over time, it became um, obvious to me that pretty much everybody on the base knew about the connection between Wright Pat and the recovered Roswell materials simply because that program, Project Blue Book, had been on the base for 20-some years and had only closed its doors in the end of 1969. So I show up a mere four years later, and most everyone was on the base then, and they knew about Project Blue Book. It was in their base newspaper. It was in local radio and TV, and they were always filming something on a little segment about, you know, the aliens at Wright Pat and that connection. So the base was familiar with that. We'll call it a mythology. But we know that's not a mythology because of the general and and Jesse Marcel. They both said that material went to Wright Patterson. So as the years went on, you know, days went on, weeks went on, I would ask like Doug in accounting, hey, Doug, Al told me about this alien connection to Wright Pat. And they go, oh, yeah, yeah. And, you know, everybody was like straight facing with me. Oh, yeah, yeah. Remember Blue Book? And, you know, you, you can read about that. And so there was this long, long connection. So through the years, I, I you know, off and on read about it, studied it a little bit, got all the books out of the library, exhausted that supply. And then back in 1997, the Phoenix Lights hit. And that, for an unknown reason, kind of re-energized my interest. Now, you know, think about it. In the 80s, my kids came along and, you know, now they're kind of older in the high school thing. And so less maintenance and oversight is needed. And so I could, you know, and I was, I coached them in all sports, coached them in softball, coached them in soccer. So I had a little bit more free time. And of course, it kind of, this thing got sprung on all of us. And it did so because Luke Air Force Base got involved. And, and Luke got involved because it happened in their backyard and they were the ones that put out that flare thing, that flare, yes. uh, yeah, yeah, that flare story. Well, the guy, when he put the flare story out, you know, back then, you know, we started to have uh, a thing called the global and the global allowed you to find the email of anybody and everybody in the world who worked for the air force. So if I knew, you know, Joe Schmo was working in Saudi Arabia, but he had an Air Force um, email, I'd go to the Global and I could find him. So when the news reports came out that said, you know, Luke Air Force Base declares that it was um, flares, a National Guard team from wherever, 
Yes, you're shaking your head. I'm thinking. I am. I am because there's, you know, what they said were flares. It's like, what kind of flares are you talking about? Because no, they, they they don't behave in in the way that they were behaving that people have the videos of. It just uh, they kind of hover. Flares don't hover; they fall. Flares leave a smoke trail behind, which can be illuminated by the flare itself, and you can't see any of that stuff in a flare. Plus, the the light emissions from the flares had absolutely no kind of chemical signature for the types of flares that were being used by the military at that time, whether they were flares ejected from aircraft for evading heat-seeking missiles or if they were illumination flares, which, no. <laughs> I, I never bought that story. In, in no way, shape, or form did, did it match. The, um, the, the, there was analysis done by the guy, uh, Jim Delatoso. He did that. So the signatures weren't the same. You know, people reported seeing crafts two miles wide. I got to uh, talk to a mother and her daughter. You mentioned James Fox. James is a friend of mine. And um, he had done a talk at a conference. And then afterwards, uh, he uh, during his talk, he brought up two of the witnesses from the 1997 episode that are uh, recorded in one of his his um, documentaries. It might have been I know what I saw. So I got a chance to talk to those two witnesses later. Uh, James and I, uh, strangely enough, they had a uh, a drawing or something, and I wound up winning a, a copy of James's stuff. And I go, dude. I, and so, I, you know, I said, you've got to autograph this. And then I, he introduced me to the ladies. But anyway, I talked to them and they said, this thing was a couple hundred feet over their car and it trailed them the whole way. And the daughter was able to look out and the wings were a mile on each side of their car, a freaking mile. And it blotted out all the stars, you know, it was that night. Um, so anyway, this uh, captain, I think he was, was putting, he was the public affairs official that they, the sacrificial lamb, yeah. uh, the, they want, whose career they wanted to end. So they pushed them up front to put out the flare story. Well, we looked them up on the globe and we meaning myself and a handful of folks that were kind of a little circle of uh, UFO enthusiasts at Wright Pat. And I think I started it and I said, so I typed out a, an email to him and, you know, dear captain, no, thank you for, you know, going out there, but please, please stop it. Cause you're making all of us who work for the air force look extremely stupid. I beg you stop putting this stuff out. And, you know, it was crickets because he's not going to respond to, right. to that kind of, you know, um, uncomplimentary email. Uh, <laughs> so they, they, and other people did that too. They just went, please, dear God, you know, we've studied, you know, we've got degrees, years in the lab, and you're making us look like imbeciles. Now, were so, you were you Air Force at the time or were you a civilian, I'm civilian worker? Okay. I'm civilian. And I've been civilian. You know, I graduated from the University of Detroit in 75, and I took the job at Wright-Patterson. Okay. So I've been civilian, but I've worked side by side yep. uh, with the military yeah, through, through all those years. So... um my interest was peak at that point. And, you know, I started to uh, find other things, uh, other avenues to, to research. And in um, 2008, which was like three years before my retirement, I knew my retirement was coming, you know, within five years or whatever. And I started to do some field research. So uh, when I was sent 
TDY somewhere, I would research the local area and I would try to find out, were there any significant UFO incidents here? And can I, I decided what I was going to do is because of all the years of hearing the history of Wright Pat and all of that UFO stuff, and me being a researcher, I, I worked for Air Force Research Labs for nearly 40 years, you know, it was in my DNA. I thought I would just put my finger into the wounds to see if they were real. And that's all I wanted to do. I, I didn't care if there were aliens or crashed ships or if there was. I really didn't care. But I wanted to find out for myself, is there any meat on this bone? And one of the first things I did is I went to Exeter, New Hampshire. Now, Exeter is interesting because in September of 1965, on the 3rd of September of 1965, a young man by the name of Muscarello, Arthur Muscarello, he was walking down um, a, a dark road and he was going in from Kensington. He was going from Kensington to Exeter, New Hampshire, where he lived with his mom. And when he got in front of this farmhouse, out from behind the trees that line the southern edge of the farmhouse, it's the Clyde Russell farmhouse, up came this UFO 90 foot in width. And it hovered over the house and the, the detached garage. Well, he thought the thing was going to crush him. So he ran across the street and he fell into this ditch whereupon this UFO receded to the back of the property and dropped back down behind this tree line. He got back up and he was rapping on the door and the, the occupants didn't answer. So now 2008, now that happened in 65. So it'd be 75, 85, 95, 05. So 40 some years after the fact, I locate, I use some records and I locate the farmhouse. And as I approached, I parked my rental car, you know, in the driveway being really presumptuous that they weren't going to open up with a shotgun on me. A beautiful, beautiful early fall day. So I, I um, knock on the door doom, 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 and I notice that the screen has one of those classic aluminum screen doors with the alphanumeric character for the last name. And it's an R for Russell. And I'm thinking, this can't happen. Could there be somebody from the Russell family still owning this house this many years later? Well, I hear this noise, like, ooh, this rumble. And I think, crap. And are we going to have a landing? Because right. I, I did not recognize the sound. I'm hearing, ooh. I'm thinking, uh-oh. And, you know, my chills. I'm getting chills on my arm. And from around the corner is this old guy. I found out he's 80 years old. And he's got these, this front loader. And he's still working this farm. It's Arthur Russell. It's the son of Clyde Russell who owned the farmhouse on the night that Muscarello was there. So, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm dressed up, you know, kind of formal. And I, 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 you know, my sport coat and everything. And I, I tell him who I am and why I'm there. He takes me immediately under his wing. I've got my camera. Uh, and in the first book, which is um, Alien Shades of Grays, Evidence of Extraterrestrial Visitation to Wright-Patterson Air Force Base and Beyond, 
There's a whole chapter in there, which includes my visit that day in 2008 to that very, very famous uh, Exeter UFO incident. So I'm there and I've got pictures of him and he's telling me the story of the night it happened. And he explains why his father did not answer the door. I said, Arthur Muscarello, it's Norman Muscarello. Why his father didn't open the door to Norman Muscarello that night. He explained that it was like 1.30 in the morning and he thought that the knocking was a drunk. Norman has to go back to the road. He finally gets picked up, goes, gets driven into town. They take him there. Uh, the, the, uh, People who picked him up, take him there, and he meets Scratch Tolan, and Scratch is the desk sergeant. So when an officer comes in, Eugene Bertrand, he tells Bertrand, take Norman back out to the site there, okay? See if you see anything and, like, humor the kid. But he knew Norman didn't get shook up, and Norman was really shook up. So they get there, and there's um, there's a called the dining farm. The Carl Dining owned the farm that was separated by this large horse pasture from the Russell farm. And they decided to split the difference and, and go out into this little pasture area because they heard all of these farm animals going ballistic Mm. and it wasn't normal. They were, they were used to making calls in the area or driving to, and usually, you know, that time of night, that morning at, you know, 2 AM by that time, the animals are all settled down, but they're going absolutely bonkers. So they're heading towards the noise. And lo and behold, they were going to go back to the cruiser when the 90 foot UFO showed up again, <sighs> comes out back from behind a tree line. It now hovers a hundred feet over the head of officer Bertrand, who's a former air force guy and Norman Muscarello. So Bertrand whips his revolver out, aims it at the UFO and goes, Oh, no, not today. (laughs) Yeah, I don't blame him for that. And I bet you Muscarello is probably freaking out and saying, not again. He got to see it twice, like within an hour. So they retreat to the car. Um, They get on the squawky. Bertrand goes, scratch, I see the damn thing myself. And as they're deciding what to do, Officer David Hunt shows up in a separate patrol car. They all go back out into the field to stand underneath this UFO, 90-foot hovering UFO. And they're there for at least 10 minutes watching this thing, watching the the light sequence silently hovering over their head. And then they watch it, lose interest in them, and it heads towards Hampton. About 20 minutes later, the Hampton Police Control Center is calling the nearby Pease Air Force Base, which is like 10 miles away, and reporting the same UFO, unbeknownst, he did, they didn't know about the Exeter encounter. It's just a citizen had reported to the Hampton police that this big, huge UFO was floating over the area. So there's this corroboration. So now it's 2008, and I have the son of the man, Carl, and Carl's mentioned prominently in a book by John Fuller a copy of which I have to my right-hand side that I took with me that day that had, I had Arthur Russell sign for me, not knowing that Arthur Russell was going to be in the home. Right. Right. I just, That's amazing. The, I just took the book as like my intro, like, you know, yeah, it, it really did happen. You know, here's the book, here's the famous book on it. So that got me started doing all of my really, you know, my field searchy field researchy, kind of things. So 
I did that book. Um, the first book chronicles um, my day I spent with the famous Travis Walton. Um, Tra- Travis is the most famous UFO abductee ever, and people can read about him in his books and watch the movies. So I got to spend a day with Travis. I chronicle that and the things I learned. Um, I went to other sites. I have a chapter in the first book about Wright-Patterson with a lot of things that nobody ever knew before about Wright-Patterson and some connections there and some other experiences. In the second book, I moved on and I did uh, a two-year case study of a family that has entities, contact with entities since they were children. And the, the woman, the oldest contactee in that book, claims that she is part of the alien hybridization program and that they have used her eggs to create hybrids. Oh, wow. And in that book are excerpts from four of her hypnotic regressions that were done by three different world-class hypnotic therapists. There's Dr. Leo Sprinkle, and he did two of the regressions. Uh, I have the audio of one and the video of the other. He also wrote the foreword for my book, and Dr. Leo Sprinkle is a legend in uh, hypnotic therapy. Uh, Then there's a regression in there by my friend Yvonne Smith and a regression that was done by Barbara Lamb. And your listeners can go check. These are the creme de la creme of all hypnotic therapists. Uh, They all have their own books and following and have done thousands and thousands of regressions. So I fully documented uh, her claims. Some of her, uh, her, the lady's name is Victoria. The book is Victoria's Secret Truth. And some of the claims I disregarded because I thought they weren't important enough or corroborative enough of of her experiences. But it's a very solid case, and it took two years of research to put it all together and corroborate it. And now that that brings us to the 1966 case. Yep. Here we go. This is where it's going to get wild because this is right in our backyard. (laughs) This is what really started to pull us into it too when we saw that on on that phenomenon movie, let alone our own sighting that we had in 2018. But then when I saw that there have been things going on here in Michigan, I wonder who else is who knows about these things, who else is seeing stuff. You know, three thousand members on our Facebook group later of people reporting things. And it's quite amazing. We have a huge history of UFOs that nobody really talks about. And uh, again, this is a this should be a piece of Michigan history right here. So, well, we're go- we're going to re we are going to rewrite Michigan history tonight. Awesome, and, and you you'll, you're going to be part of it. Um. And and um, I'm I'm just thinking of some things. You know, you talk about the movie, the phenomenon. Well, James Fox was up in this remote area uh, of New Mexico that I happened to be doing some research uh, on a site that supposedly there was a UFO crash, and I had my metal detector up there, and we wound up running into each other. And it turns out we were both staying at the same eight room motel out in the freaking middle of nowhere and i looked at i go down to dinner and he's sitting there with his cameraman and i look at him and go 
you got to be kidding me. And so on one of the evenings, you know, there's that, uh, it's called the Very Large Array. It's that huge telescope, and it's been in all the movies. So his cameraman was Bush. I said, we got to go out there and snoop around tonight. So James Fox and I jump in my rental vehicle, and we're driving down the road like 10 miles an hour because um, the elk populate all the road and they're yep. massive and they're many and you don't want to hit one. So we're creeping there and it t- takes about, about 30 minutes from where we're staying. And we're sitting in a truck and we're, we're plotting what we're going to do because the, the array is closed and it's all fenced off and stuff. And, and we're, as we're sitting in a truck <laughs> waiting, uh, you know, do we want to look at this or go around this side? A truck starts coming down the road with its lights. You can tell it's a truck because the headlights and James looks at me, he goes, you think that's security? I go, it can only be security. Right. It's right. Got it. And sure enough, the guy pulls right up. He's got his freaking lights. He's blinding us. And he yells out of the truck, oh, I'm coming over. What are you guys doing? <laughs> and it was the security people. Oh, so, man. So my claim to fame is, is I got rousted by the very large array security force with James in my truck. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah, he, he he probably will admit. And so we he wound up rousting us, and we wound up stargazing for a half an hour, leaning up against a truck, uh, you know, swapping lies. So <laughs> anyway, um, I had a another book in progress, and uh, it was trilogy, right? Alien Shades of Grey's trilogy, and it was going to be just a collection of of great stories that I could corroborate to a certain level. Uh, it turns out some people who were professional associates of mine were actually experiencers and never admitted it to anybody. But then they read my second book and thought, oh, well, I can come forward to Ray because he understands. And in some cases, they found it uh, very therapeutic that uh, one of them thought they were the only ones, for example. That's one of the main reasons why we started our Facebook group too, was just to get people a place to not hear the X-Files music played in the background like they do on so many media outlets when they want to talk about UFOs. And, you know, that's something I, even Michelle and I were just joking before uh, you joined the call was, uh, you know, I, my, my daughter for my birthday got me, you know, this alien coffee mug, <laughs> yeah. right? Right. And she said, well, you're drinking coffee out of that, you know, at least you don't hear the X-Files music playing in the background because we know how you feel about that. And, you know, I'm like, that's true because it it really, it seems like they want to talk about these things, but then they always add in that thing to dismiss you at the same time. And I see it from people at work sometimes and people that I know, it's like, yeah, that's kind of cool. And it's like, Hey, there's a UFO report coming out from the government about these things. They don't know what they are. And it's almost like the blinders go on and, and they, they're like in a, a state of cognitive dissonance, like, uh, 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 goodbye, you know? Yeah, that's nice. And it, and it becomes like a joke. We- no, I, I've got the best ones whenever I'll talk to someone and they'll go, well, what's the name of your podcast? And I'll tell them and I get that look and they're like, oh, <laughs> You're one, you're one of those. (laughs) (laughs) Well, yeah, we know that there's people, we know people that have had some very traumatic experiences. One of them we interviewed on our show 
And that was Guy Merritt who had a run in. And it wasn't just the fact that he saw a giant triangle back in 94, I think it was, that really freaked him out heading south from Flint toward uh, Fenton area. You know, it really shook him up. But then it was everything else that started to happen after that exposure. The strange call that he received from somebody on the West Coast who said they were from MUFON, but he really didn't believe it because they, they were giving him some kind of a weird vibe. And then things started happening with people that he worked with. And it, it just, it really did. And it's kind of like what happened with us in 2018. We saw that triangle here in, in Canton. We didn't act on anything. I mean, it freaked me out being a military guy and a, you know, a earth and space science teacher. I've never seen a UFO. I've seen tons of aircraft. I've flown aircraft. My dad's a pilot. You know, I've been around aircraft all my life. And when I see a triangle that is an equilateral triangle about anywhere from 200 to 300 feet on each side, hovering with three lights shining down onto the ground, but they weren't shining. They were just glowing. And this thing did not bank. It did not move. It rotated to move parallel with us south along the freeway. And that was it for me. I I was out of there. And then these stories, we started having these people relate their stories to us on our Facebook group. And, you know, 2021 came around and I was like, honey, we should start a podcast since we got all these people. We can talk about their stories and have people come on. And then we found out about the 1966 thing. And all of these things now have just steamrolled because of this one event that her and I had gone through. It was the first one that we started looking into. Yeah. Yeah. Was, that, that's it, the way these things happen. Yeah. It seemed, and, and just like you and I were talking and three of us were talking before we hit that record button about the, the weird synchronicities that happen. And everybody I've talked to so far that we've talked to on this podcast, seems like there's these weird synchronicities of things that we know people stayed our mothers, you, your mother and my mother are, we're in the same apartment complex in we're, Sterling. We're Heights. all Kevin Bacon. Right. It's really <laughs> weird. That's right. You know, uh, guys sighting in March, our sighting in March, we look into the 1966 Ann Arbor thing. That was all in March. It's like, it what was. in the world is going on? Anyways, I continue. <laughs> let you okay, talk. That's great. No, it's, it's great to hear other experiences. All right. So um, I had this, um, third book that I was writing and it was going to be about experiences that people had shared with me. Now, um, when you get into this business and it, it, as you see it, it avalanches, people want to tell you their stories. So of course uh, the first book comes out and I do a couple conferences and then I'm doing local things or, you know, I wound up just on the first book, I wound up uh, being on coast to coast. You can't imagine that kind of exposure. And then uh, MUFON, uh, my name got passed around MUFON. So I did a a group, well, it was a former MUFON group out in Los Angeles. And I wound up being um, uh, giving a presentation to the Phoenix MUFON group in Arizona and then in Carolina and Michigan and and so, and other things. Uh, And then when your name gets out there, people just want to send you things. So I've been sent a lot of interesting 
photographs and videos and stories, and they continue to this day. So I thought, you know, I would do like a um, researcher's notebook kind of finale. And again, you never know what's going to be a trigger for something. But uh, it was coming up on this, uh, you know, a, a year hence, it was going to be like the 55th anniversary this year of that Ann Arbor uh, whole UFO thing. And there was, I must have read an article or just researching for whatever I was doing at the present time. And so I started the research and with a little bit of luck and a lot of legwork, I was able to locate a pilot, a fighter interceptor pilot who miraculously is still alive today hmm. and whom I thought because I was able to establish to some certainty that he was assigned to the 74th fighter interceptor wing at Selfridge in March of 1966. So I approached him, told him who I was and the fact that I spent four decades working for the air force did a lot to create a key to unopen that door. Yeah. So um, it took him a couple days to to uh, nosh around, you know, what what I was after. And then he invited me to visit him and told me the story. And his story is thus. In March of 1966, he was on five minute alert. He was with the air defense folks. And what that means is, is they thought in that time period that the Russians were going to nuclear bomb America by bringing their bombers over the North Pole, fly over Canada, which was, you know, vastly unprotected, and then drop them on the U.S. So the fighter interceptor group, the 74th fighter interceptor group at Selfridge was going to be the first line of defense. And, and they had groups of two that were on like a five minute alert a follow-up 10, a 15-minute, a 30-an-hour, which means if the klaxon goes off, the first group that has to be in the air is the five-minute group. So just that day, the man who became Colonel, full-bird Colonel Gary K. Carroll and his wingman, who eventually became Lieutenant Colonel Bob Nicholson, they were on five-minute alert, slid down the pole, got into their jets, and because Gary was the first one airborne. He became the mission leader. For the next 90 minutes, they were being vectored about southeastern Michigan, looking for something. And the people that were vectoring them was Battle Creek. Battle Creek was the control center in 1966. They had the massive radar there. They had the 10-foot thick, indestructible bunker for the control center. And they were using both radar information and information that they were getting from first responders, law enforcement, fire, that sort of thing, and the Air Force Base. And they were trying to vector in Colonel Carroll and Colonel Nicholson in their F-106 Delta darts. So they were crisscrossing. They were doing a crisscrossing pattern as they were being directed by the control center, and they were going everywhere from Lake St. Clair all the way out over to the Dexter Hillsdale area and as far north as Flint. So they were 
down south first, up over um, Detroit Metro Airport. And at that point, they were had been coordinated with Detroit Metro and air traffic was shut down. So they were zigzagging. They were being rel- vectored all across that area when suddenly they get a radar return. There was an object up there. And then shortly after that, they have a visual sighting. So they sighted this object. They had a visual return, and they were able to close on it. During this 90-minute encounter, they got multiple radar returns. And those radar returns were recorded on their onboard system for review during the debriefing period. Both pilots saw the object. During a later interview, now I, I interviewed and video recorded the interviews over 30 hours with Colonel Carroll. Oh, wow. And in one of the interviews, he drew the object that he saw and he described it to me. Remarkably, I want to set the stage. Colonel Carroll knew about UFOs only to the extent that he'd heard about them from another pilot. Guy said, you know, I saw something unusual. I'm not sure whose it was, but I just thought it was a UFO. He didn't study UFOs. He didn't read newspapers about UFOs, but he knew that something like that existed. So after his incident, he did not read the newspapers to follow up. And he didn't read the newspapers like the Ann Arbor Times that was showing the witness testimony and and had all these drawings. He knew nothing about it. And, you know, I have that recorded in, in those interviews. So when he, I had gave him a piece of paper to eventually sign and date after he finished, I had him draw it and he gave me the verbal description, which of course is captured on video. It so eerily matched those that had been printed in newspapers and had its descriptions recorded in places that I found. It is undeniable that he saw one of the same objects that had been seen by by the citizenry of southeastern Michigan during that UFO flap in 1966. And it it literally floored me. And I had to tell him, I said, Gary, you're not going to believe this. This is almost exactly what everyone was describing. In fact, he even used the, the word football. And that's what many of the witnesses had used. So then, of course, um, you know, well, continuing with the story, they intercept it. They visually see it um, in the interviews. I have them. We try to figure out the size of it. And in the book, Swamp Gas My Ass, all of that, the excerpts, uh, the, the critical excerpts from the interviews, his drawing, his military records. I have the memoirs of his wingman that day. Great chunks of his wingman's memoirs are in there to uh, document their military history. And and I did it. I actually have the real DD-214s, which are the official records, as you know. And I put it there for the whole world to see. And it proves that they were the guys that could have done the intercept, that they were at Selfridge during the time that they claimed to be, you know, it's the only way I could have, I could have documented it better is if I would have found the flight logs for those planes that were long since destroyed, you know, they became drones for a shoot down or whatever. Right. So, you know, we took it to bedrock. 
they went into a debrief. They were debriefed by the local intelligence officer. They plugged the, the, the memory boxes into the recording devices. They put it up on the screen. Sure enough, during the time period that Battle Creek was getting radar returns, they were getting returns on their airborne radar. They were getting visual. So 55 years later, the world is screaming for disclosure. And as happenstance in 2020, in January, is when I started to interview Colonel Carroll. And I did not know, no, I, I'm sure the world didn't know, that there was the rider in that bill that, that President Trump signed that said, hey, Intelligence Committee, you're going to put out this report you know, in June. I had no idea that was going to happen. But once I got wind of it, I thought, well, I wonder when my book's going to come out because you never really know. I mean, you, right. I'm still, I'm, yeah, I'm still corroborating things and, and whatnot. Fortunately, we got it out by the end of April. And if people want disclosure, you have the testimony, the live testimony of a man who had, and, and I, I talked to it in the book about his responsibilities, about him being in control of Air Forces Iceland, about him being in control of the entire East Coast air defense for the United States of America, the, the uh, responsible positions he held. He's a war hero. He has the Distinguished Flying Cross. He has a list, yay long, of dozens of medals he has for uh, his bravery, his skills, and his wingman, the same thing. So, as you know, in 1966, what did they say was the reason for all the sightings? What were they saying that people were seeing? Swamp gas. Swamp <laughs> gas. Marsh gas. They said it was a spontaneous ignition of marsh gas. Now, well, a quick question for yes, you. Yes, please. When the fighters were dispatched from Selfridge to intercept this unknown object, where in that time, that span of time, did the intercept take place? Was it toward the beginning of the sightings, the end, or somewhere in the middle? The, the best that we could come up with after a lot of research and looking at the local stories and the history and what Colonel Carroll remembers of what he remembers of the environment, the ground as he took off and he was flying around, uh, he remembered that in one of the first interviews, he said, he told me it was late spring. Okay. And then we used other pieces of information about the weather, about what he remembers about when he eventually heard for the first time about what was going on. And so we kind of had to piece that all together and, Everything points to the last two weeks of March. Okay. And, you know, that phenomena was going on from early March until mid-April. Yeah. But everything we put together about what he remembers of the weather and the temperatures and uh, the ground cover or lack thereof. And, you know, we looked at we looked at the um, on the weather underground. We looked at some of the weather reports. And then, you know, and I cover that all in the book, how okay. we circled the wagons and how we were able to make that that determination. What may be unknown is that on multiple occasions, the witnesses, which included dozens and dozens of 
Washtenaw County, uh, Saline County Police, uh, Ann Arbor Police. They all filed reports about seeing these UFOs. And in one case, a celebrated case, uh, the officer's name escapes me at this point, but Frank Manor and his son were the people in Dexter, Michigan, that had reported seeing the UFO. And they were chasing the UFO with Sheriff Harvey from the Washtenaw uh, Sheriff's Department and a half dozen of, of his guys. But on the northern end of the property was another sheriff from the Dexter Police Department. And he saw four UFOs leave the wooded area, hover over his car, assemble as a group of four and take off. And that was only about 2,000 feet north of where Frank Manor and all the police officers were running through the woods following these lights. So there wasn't just a singular UFO in that area during that time span. And and that, um, that report of four UFOs in a group was repeated multiple times in multiple reports. So which of those four they got because they those those UFOs were actually seen to be moving through the area as individuals coming together in groups of two coming together in groups of four and you know moving about splitting back up so one of those times where maybe they were doing some uh, area reconnaissance so I hope that answers your question but there was no doubt in my mind it was part of that group of the swamp gas UFOs so how is this history changing Future President Gerald Ford was so upset because his phone was ringing off the hook. He was a a representative at the time. And another representative whose jurisdiction is always happening in Weston Vivians, who is still alive today. I found him in a retirement home. Oh, wow. They were so tired of all these guys calling them in and ringing their phones off the hook. They set up a congressional inquiry in front of the House Armed Services Committee on the 5th of April, 1966. J. Allen Hynek was the spokesman for Project Blue Book and thus the Air Force. There was so much interest in the Michigan case that the unheard of thing happened. Weston Vivians was calling Major Quintanilla at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base at Project Blue Book every day, wanting to know what they knew up to the moment. It turns out that everyone goes, well, geez, where did J. Allen Hynek, who had on the 25th of March, a massive press conference at the Detroit Press Club to summarize for the world what his three-day investigation concluded. And at that press conference, he told everybody, well, it was marsh gas. It was swamp gas. What he didn't tell everybody, he got that idea from his friends at the University of Michigan Astronomy Department. He had a very good friend there who headed up the department. And in fact, Hynek spent the three nights at that professor's home. And every night they would have a little uh, circle. uh, Yeah, you know, and they would get together and talk. And it was at those meetings that one of the professors said, have you heard about swamp gas? So Hynek ran it up to the chain and he ran it up to Quintanilla and they ran it up to the Secretary of Defense and they rubber stamped it and said, you go with that. And when Hynek got the call from Washington, 
to confirm they were going to use the swamp gas story, he was sitting next to Sheriff Harvey. He was in Harvey's office that he was using as his little satellite place. So he comes out of the phone call and he tells Harvey, it's swamp gas. After he had told Harvey for three days, I don't know what it is. And Harvey's actually quoted in the media as saying, that was the damnest thing I ever witnessed. For three (laughs) days, he's telling me he doesn't know what it is. And now all of a sudden, it's swamp gas. That's amazing. For for weeks, they were dealing with this, the phone calls. I mean, even I think it was uh, Deputy uh, David Fitchpatrick that took uh, the pictures. He did. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, so I guess that was swamp gas, too. So for a six week period, there was a massive swamp gas, uh, multiple explosions, little ignitions happening all over the place. <laughs> it's just it's just amazing to me. And that kind of started to tank uh, Hynek's credibility, didn't it? Uh, Hynek's credit, he never really had any credibility yeah. uh, because the the public just went, oh, yeah, well, weather balloon, floating sign, whatever, whatever they made up, you know, it was the government, so they wouldn't lie to us. And and people just went on with their lives. He he super, super regretted it. But, yeah. you know, they had to go back. They had to go to Congress. The secretary of the Air Force had to go to Washington, D.C., and he dragged. Dr. Hynek and Major Quintanilla with him. And they had the audacity, they had the wavos to, to tell all of these congressmen, again, it was swamp gas. Now, the testimony is there because the congressional records available. And in swamp gas, my ass, I pick apart using official records, using the weather report, uh, using uh, science to prove that that was an impossibility. I use all of the testimony of these individuals. And of course, I play that off against Colonel Carroll, who was actually chasing the swamp gas at Mach 1.3 and 10,000 feet and got a visual on it good enough that he could draw it. And again, that's what makes this such a great story on disclosure, because it's two people who had these unassailable long-term careers. And I make fun, I make fun of the government, you know, even though they'd give me a paycheck every month, I make <laughs> fun of this idiocracy that went, went on because everyone can look at it and, and laugh at it. The interesting thing is, is there was a, um, first let me address the Fitzpatrick um, sure. image. Because the Fitzpatrick image was a time exposure, it is, very likely that indeed what he captured was celestial because it was a long time exposure and any one of these objects would have put much more of a signature on that. Uh, And if you look, the ground lights are blooming as they would for a time lapse, but the objects in the sky, if you uh, go, you can look it up. There were a couple of bright objects in the sky at that time that were not UFOs. So to me and my quick analysis, it was really bad. And and so you notice that's what the government put out front. Oh, these are phony. I think they were right. It was just, but, but Fitzpatrick and his partner 
both reported seeing UFOs, That's but right. they never said these were the ones we saw zipping around. Right. So he kind of left his camera off to the side, didn't he, with that time exposure going? And then they left and then came back. I think they were, weren't they kind of hoping to catch it while they were gone doing another call or something like that? Well, they, they had seen these on multiple occasions. I actually think they used the top of their cruiser to set the camera on or on the hood. And okay. then they were watching, you know, some other UFOs go and they might have zipped past through that area. Well, be that as it may, there is so there are so many expert witnesses to the event that proves that, you know, swamp gas is laughable. But the civil defense director in that area um, assembled a small team and they found something very unusual there at the Hillsdale site, which is the second site that was investigated by Dr. Hynek. That area of Michigan is totally devoid of boron, the element boron. Mm. And it's in that area, there are not even trace aspects of boron. But in the place where 87 co-eds at Hillsdale College watched the UFO go up and down for four hours, along with the civil defense director in the same room, looking out the same window, he went with his team and they found large quantities of unexplainable boron in the little pond that was there and the ground over which this thing hovered. So Hmm. I explain all of this as why this is indicative of there having been a real UFO there. Now it's theory, but hear me out. Boron is used in the control of nuclear processes. Google it. I invite all the listeners to Google it. It's used widely in nuclear control processes. This stuff can get spent. Imagine now these machines that we don't know who flies them or how they fly. They're probably powered by some type of nuclear power. If that's the case, and they're not defying the nuclear laws of physics, they would need boron to control those processes that are powering those nuclear processes that are powering their ship. And every once in a while, I think they would dump their spent boron in places they probably felt, you know, wouldn't be investigated. Little did they know that Hillsdale college was just the other side of that tree line. Yeah. So to find this boron and I explain it again, all in swamp gas, my ass, Uh, all about the uses of boron, uh, why I suspect that those guys found that boron. But that wasn't the only evidence that was found by this civil defense director. He also found radiological evidence. And again, I cover all of that. So it takes swamp gas out of the picture. And now I say to all the people who came forward with their story, in swamp gas, my ass, you are now vindicated. Yes. The people who made fun of you, you know, and, and you, you suffered by this, you were right. And you can now nanny, nanny, boo, boo, (laughs) (laughs) anybody and everybody who wants to contest your story. Yeah. Yeah. That's amazing. It's an amazing story. And it, 
there was so much ridicule of people that happened during that time. It, it all, it, it's like a chunk of history and, and time that people in Michigan just forgot. I mean, it, it's like mass amnesia of people here in Southeast Michigan about this just buried news. I, I was going to tell, I, I knew that James was doing the movie because there was a property upon uh, which um, there is supposedly metal from a crashed UFO. And I had gotten permission from the rancher to go to this property. Now, James knew about the property because there had been a book written about it, but he didn't have access. And so that happenstance meeting that night, uh, the next day, I took him to the property and I let him do some filming with his drone. Um, so another point, um, that I wanted to make is, um, this is for, again, your local listeners on the 27th of September, I will be speaking at the Dexter library in Dexter, Michigan. Awesome. And I am going to bring a couple of other toys with me, uh, things that I've not put in the book, things that I'm not going to talk about on any of these shows. And uh, we're going to refresh the memories of everybody. When I get there, I'm going to bring copies of all three of the books. I'll sign them. And I also wanted to put a plug for my friend, uh, Karen uh, Piacentini, who runs the Fenton Open Book Bookstore on Shiawassee Avenue in Fenton, Michigan. And since he's a friend of mine and I get to go up in that area, I visit my mom and such. Um, her bookstore has autographed copies of all my books. So if you're in Michigan and you want to get a copy of the books, run up to the open book bookstore in Fenton, Michigan on Shiawassee Avenue and buy them all out and make Karen happy. <laughs> keep her in business. Please keep Absolutely. her in business. So 27 September, I will be in Dexter and I'm also working to try to get some other, um, you know, gigs as it were there in, in Michigan this year, hopefully, uh, you know, that'll work out, but that's the one I have in the books right now. That's awesome. Hopefully a lot of our listeners will be able to make it out there and uh, pack the place for you. So that would be awesome. I know we'll, we'll try to get out there. That's like right after our school year starts, you know, and as teachers, it's crazy that first, you know, month or so before everything kind of calms down, but we'll, we'll try to make that one for sure. I was going to yeah. say, do you have a time that you're going to be appearing at the you know, I think it's going to start around six o'clock and uh, I've arranged a big block of time because I want to do setup. And then I always like, you know, some people want to get books beforehand and, you know, I chat or you know, I'll give them my email address because they got an interesting story. So I think I'll probably show up about five maybe. And, uh, you know, the show should go on around six. I'll do about 75 minutes Q&A and then we'll do book sales and book signing. Awesome. So, I'm really I'm so stoked because this is an historical location and I know I'm going to be up in Michigan a couple more times before that happens. So I promise you, I'm going to be snooping around Dexter and uh, Hillsdale and that before it happens. And I'm going to I've got some sites on a map that I definitely want to visit and, you know, see where Frank Manor's house was and yeah. just that sort of thing. And, you know, maybe track down a couple of people who were uh, witnesses that had talked to Heineck way back in 66. So I'll be snooping around. Michelle, you had a question you wanted to ask there. 
Oh, about his investigations. Yeah. And when you started digging into the UFO sightings in Michigan and even um, at the air base, uh, was there any sort of opposition that you got from military, from the government, from your friends, family that you would want to share? No. And, and, and it's actually the opposite. And I'll tell you a great story. Uh, it actually, I covered it in my first book, but it bears repeating. Uh, during my career, which I was so fortunate, uh, you know, I, I was an engineer. And on occasion, I think because of my genetically inherited organizational skills, I was asked to run large programs and coordinate lots of people. I was the head of the evaluation and validation team sponsored by the Undersecretary of Defense for Research and Engineering in the Pentagon. And I ran a team of 50 people for 10 years that met every three months, most of whom were PhDs. Uh, I worked directly for members of the senior executive service. So those are people who are the civilian equivalents of generals. So um, on uh one occasion, I had worked for an SES for two years, and I had come in possession of a piece of metal that reputedly had connections to a UFO crash. And I asked my now friend and former big boss if he knew anybody uh, who knew material science that might want to take on the evaluation of this piece of metal. Now, I knew that this SES number one, we'll call him, was best friends with the guy who ran the materials research directorate at Wright-Pat. And so by asking him, do you know anybody, I was actually referring to another SES that I will not name now, but anybody who's listening from right Pat knows exactly the two guys I'm talking about. So that rather than going, Ray is crazy. And I don't know how we possibly work with this guy and put him in these responsible positions <laughs> said to me, Hey, I got this social event with Dr. So-and-so I'll ask him. So I get this phone call a couple of weeks later. Hey, we're in. I'm like, holy, holy shamolis, man. <laughs> so these two SESs go, um, in fact, his contact had since retired as the head of the materials directorate. It was now a new guy. So they approach the new guy and have a meeting with him, SES to SES. And they go, um, you know, they didn't give me the details, but it kind of went something like, Hey, this guy's really responsible. He's worked for us. He thinks he's got this medal and he's willing to, to give you a chunk of it if it turns out to be something, you know, extraordinary. And the response I got back, I thought it was going to be that guy, he's, you're insane. He's not going to do it. And we can't do it because it, you know, involves a UFO. They said to me, they are so backlogged with doing their analysis and other work for three-letter agencies to be unnamed, that they couldn't do it. They, they cannot partition any time. And they're worried that if somebody found out that they did do it at, at the detriment of these other programs, it wouldn't look well. And so 
the two guys that were acting on my behalf were crestfallen. Uh, they were just like, man, we can't believe it. We almost pulled it off. But I was so enthused first that they went to bat for me. Yeah. And that the response wasn't, you know, get the hell out of my office. It was, even if it wasn't the truth, it was something that I could, I could uh, live with. And as the years went on, individuals have come to me who worked on the base, who were no longer employed and would tell me things that I would just go, you know, wow. And they only told me them because I wrote the book and they knew that because of my secrecy oath, I would never say anything. Right. They obviously broke theirs (laughs) (laughs) by telling you, (laughs) but they knew it wouldn't go any further. And, and so, you know, I have gotten nothing but support. Many people, I do a lot of local things here uh, in Ohio and I've got, in fact, a handful coming up in, in late October I always see people who worked at the base and they're like, yeah, or they'll tell me a story. And it, it's just so cool. Um, nobody has knocked on my front door. I've got no blowback uh, really from anybody. I get a lot of encouragement. So maybe I'm being used. I don't know. <laughs> well, that's, uh, that's good to hear because you do hear so many of the negative stories, you know, the guys in the suit show up and they take things from people. They threaten them not to talk and, and things like that. So you know, at least it's good that, you know, the guys on the ground anyways, that, that seem to be working on this stuff have a general respect. We, and we might want to knock on wood <laughs> that we didn't just jinx ourselves. Right. <laughs> so a uh, question for you. Now I have a feeling, and I, I used to be one of these people as well, um, that get uh, like area 51 and the S4 area and Bob Lazar kind of conflate it with the whole idea of right pat and what was going on there do you have any overlap or, or any knowledge of an overlap that was going on uh between those two areas during that time of 1966 no i i i don't really have a great familiarity with area 51 okay I think it was built in the early fifties, maybe 52 or something like that. So I guess there could have been some overlap. Um, but if you look at the, the public record general, the, 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 the general at um, the eighth army air corps, air force headquarters in Fort Worth and Jesse Marcel both said the stuff went to right path. So we know it went there. I am 1000% convinced that whatever went to Wright-Patterson Air Force Base, you know, or, or that whatever crashed in the desert went to Wright-Pat, that's unassailable. I'm a little less accepting that alien bodies also went there, simply because, you know, you have people who signed legal documents from the Air Force that said that stuff went there, but you don't have that same kind of confirmation uh, in the form of alien bodies, right? So that's why that corroboration is not there. But interestingly enough, in 1947, there was a building on base called Building 219. It was the regional hospital. Now, the regional hospital would have been the only place through which alien bodies, dead or alive, would have been processed at Wright Pat. Why? It had doctors, it had nurses, it had an operating room, it had a morgue, it had all the supplies and equipment it needed to do autopsies or research on on aliens. So building 219 would have been 
the place. Years after the regional hospital ceased to work there and became other things like a pediatric clinic, the foreign technology division spent about 10 years occupying that building. Why is that interesting? FTD is the organization that ran Project Blue Book. They're the ones that were most closely associated with the aliens that would have been brought there and the materials. So isn't it interesting that out of the 8,000 acres and the 600 plus buildings that are on that base, the Foreign Technology Division just happened to take over the building through which the materials and the bodies would have passed. I find that phenomenally coincidental. Yeah, that is that a coincidence. <laughs> Isn't that strange? I but think area, probably not. But Area 51, you know, and Hangar 18, if we could breach that subject for a moment. Yeah. Yep, People absolutely. say, well, we have Hangar 18. You didn't need a hangar to store the stuff. In fact, it's a terrible place to bring stuff. So probably what happened is this. They flew the airplane in, you know, the small B-29. They flew it into the hangar. And, and I am actually, uh, this just a note that for you to entice you to, to show up at my, my talk, regardless of how many term papers that you're, you're uh, grading <laughs> that day, I am going to reveal the real Hangar 18 at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. Okay, so that's my hook for you. Anyway, the guy goes into the hangar and they offload the stuff in crates or briefcases or whatever, and they're going to put it in a secure facility. Now, that building that I think they would have come to, and I'm going to discuss that in September, had vault in the basement and they probably just would have taken it and locked it up. In fact, there were multiple vaults in that building, in the business offices and in the basement. The largest piece of material recovered in Corona, New Mexico, was reported to be two foot by three foot. So do I need a hanger? I don't. The material was probably brought by the guys who recovered it, brought it to the materials director in a briefcase, opened it up and said, guys, we found this funny looking material. Uh, It's kind of got these weird properties to it. Take a month, take six months. Here's a bag of money. Put your best men on it. Do an elemental analysis. Find out everything you can about it. Just like you would you know, do your testing, your stress testing. Write us a report. Don't tell anybody about it. Six months later, they come back. Make these guys sign secrecy oaths. Grab what's left of the material and said, you never did this. We were never here. You never saw this material. And the tech report that was written never got a number, never got reviewed. And it just went with the guys who, who sourced the material. Don't need a hanger for that. Right. Okay. So I'm just going to put that to bed for the moment, and I'm going to do the reveal in Dexter. Okay. In in Area 51, at, in 1947, Wright-Patterson would have been one of the only places you could have brought that material to do that investigation because the materials directorate was world-class. They had been there. For 30 years, they formed at Wright-Patterson in 1917. So they had 30 years of experience, and nobody would have had the expertise or the equipment to do the type of analysis that was required. Fast forward to 1952, the government gets more money. 
Um, the capabilities are expanding. They can't just have one materials testing place because materials have many different applications, aerospace, medical. So they probably launched similar materials, electron microscopes and elemental analysis machines and X-ray diffraction and all this. And they put these in different areas of the country. Now everything doesn't have to go to Wright-Patterson. And I am thinking that these exotic materials on these, you know, U2s and everything else that were being tested out in that area probably needed the same type of analysis. So rather than take the materials to Wright Pad, they probably bought, brought some of the experts from Wright Pad to Area 51, put them on the machines and whatnot. So would Area 51 be a common sense place to bring recovered? crafts materials and aliens absolutely and why not you know yeah. it's even more remote than right pat i'm sure the, the security clearances couldn't get any higher they probably have more black money than they would know what to do with they can hire experts hire security buy every machine that they need you know whatever they need and well they have their private airline run that runs from i think it's mclaren yes out out to, you know, the Janet flights, I think they're called. Yes. Yeah. And if you go to the proper side of the airport, you can look right through the fence and you can watch the airplanes. Yeah. It, it's, it's, it's a terribly kept secret. Yeah. So, so <laughs> worst yeah, so, secret ever. <laughs> worst secret ever. So area 51, area 51, uh, I think could be, you know, one of those areas because material science locations and expertise has certainly spread out over the years. And, and we probably have dozens of them yeah. uh, and every university, every university now, their capabilities probably long dwarf what was available in 1947. Yeah, absolutely. Um, kind of staying around that same, since you're bringing up 1952, I had a friend of mine email me a story um, one that, I, again, I was not familiar with because I'm not a quote unquote UFO guy. I knew they were possibly around. Uh, we watched uh, ancient aliens every once in a while, yada, yada, X-Files, all that stuff. But he sent me this article and it was about the um, missing, what was it, an F-89 Scorpion jet from 1953 that was sent and became um, and was lost over Lake Superior. And it was to intercept an unidentified object. Have you done any research into that and know much about that? Was that the plane launch out of Wordsmith Air Force Base? Came from Truax Air Force Base in Madison, Wisconsin. Yeah, and it disappeared. Now, I know that there was an Air Force jet that disappeared over Lake Michigan. Yeah, this says Lake Superior. Yeah, I, I've not I've not investigated, but I do okay. know of a, of a couple of planes that went down in the Great Lakes, and that um, supposedly the folks who had the big radars that do, were doing what the weather radars, they had uh, corroborated. In one case, they had corroborated objects being in that area, and in another case, the um, the uh, radar. I, it might have even been the Air Force radar that corroborated that. The two uh, two separate objects, one being the UFO, one being the airplane. Yeah, they had actually merged on the screen, and then after that, there was nothing. nothing. Yeah. So if that's the case, I'm only superficially okay acclimated to that case. I, I'm sorry, I, I I I plead I plead total ignorance at this point. Yeah, I just recently again, this is one of those things where I just recently 
you know, found out about this, that, you know, this jet went down trying to investigate a, a UFO and, uh, yeah, that, that there are radar tapes of this thing. The two dots on the radar kind of combine into one and then disappear. The, the problem is the same that I faced when, when I was uh, trying to corroborate Gary's story. A lot of the places are gone. And I asked Gary about the, you know, he was, he was debriefed by the intelligence officer locally. And then he got a call from Battle Creek and the intelligence officer there had a more in-depth interview a lot of which, of course, is included in the book. Uh, but where that interview went, it probably went to Cheyenne Mountain, according to Colonel Carroll, and it's tucked in somebody's drawer. Well, I'm never going to get access to it unless the government decides to release it. So I really feel there's a lot of future corroboration available out there on his event, and I'm tracking it down. And, and that's why I mentioned my friend Tony Milano, because as it turns out, my best buddy from grade school works at Selfridge Air Force Base in the operations center. So I got me an inside guy. And if we're, <laughs> we're still looking, you know, awesome. we're, we're trying to track some stuff down. And, you know, I would love to update my book eventually and go, yeah, I knew we were going to find it. So, Tony, if you're listening or going to hear this, go, Tony. <laughs> and, um, you know, it's so funny, you know, like the small world. Yeah. Yeah. And he's, he's working at Selfridge. I hope he doesn't lose his job now over this. Like he'll send me an email and go, they've cuffed me, dude. <laughs> you get a, you get a broken up text in the middle of the night. Everything's in code from that point. <laughs> That's right. So, so I, help me. Yeah. I think Michelle wanted to ask you a question of, of, uh, that pertains to what you were talking about a little bit with your uh, presentations and conferences you've done in the past. Yes. Besides uh, September 27th coming up at Dexter library, we'll put that plug in there again for you at 6 PM. Um, out of all of the conferences that you've met, that you have presented at, I saw uh, Megacon in Laughlin, Nevada, and, and we, we love Nevada. <laughs> so, and at the different, MUFON uh, presentations out of all of the conferences that you've spoken at, which one do you think was your, your favorite to speak at? Um, you know, I probably attended more conferences than spoke at because I turned down some offers. Uh, others, you know, they, they uh, vaporize. I was going to be a three-time speaker at Contact in the Desert last year. And I was going to do, uh, you know, what they call an intensive. I was going to be on a panel. Uh, I had a keynote um, presentation. And unfortunately, that entire conference, it got it got canceled. So, you know, that was disappointing. And then this year, uh, I was a candidate, but I had to withdraw my name. And I was pretty sure I was going to be chosen again. But it turns out that my I have a younger son uh, who lives on the East Coast. And I have an older son and, and both are married and they wanted to do a family vacation. So I had to, to withdraw my name from there. But um, the Laughlin one was awesome. But I found that they wanted to have both sides of the story and people who were pro and who were con. And they had um, a former intelligence officer who pulled the largest disinformation scam in the history of ufology, uh, a, a man by the name of Richard Doty. 
and and he did this huge scam over Linda Moulton Howe, names you both recognize. Mm -hmm. And they had him as one of the speakers. And it just cheesed me off so bad, I, I couldn't contain myself. So when the Q&A session came up, and it's unusual because I was speaking that week, and you don't want to piss off the other speakers because they'll come back at you. That's I right. just I just ran up to the mic to make sure I got my shot. And I said, Richard, given your history, how can we believe anything that comes out of your mouth? And he looked at me and he never answered the question, <laughs> never answered the question. So from that perspective, I love the locale. I love the way they treated me. I got to meet wonderful people. Um, I thought it was great, but there were there was too much. And I'm not a, you know, a rah-rah guy, but there was too much consciousness and, you know, third chakra and all that stuff. Right. So for me, I, 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 I could let that go unless I'm a speaker again. Contact in the desert. I loved it when it was out uh, uh, in the um, uh, the 30 Palms area. Is that is that it? Uh, it was a retreat and they had these separate buildings and it was just there was a buzz, the, the contact in the desert. There was such a buzz there. But um, the new contact I haven't been to, so I don't know. Now, again, I would say that my top one was the International UFO Congress in Fountain Hills, Arizona. Okay. Okay. And it was held at um, a Marriott, I believe. And they played this. It was always this mystical music it was a modern buildings and this mystical music you're in the middle of the desert you're on a reservation uh, a native american reservation there's a casino next door but again the vibe there the energy there was fantastic and they always had great speakers none of this chakra shit and yeah. you know not not to you know make people feel bad about that where you get Just, into the woo what they call the woo Right. The woo, the yeah. real woo, you know, and they're talking yeah. about you. I talk to my my dead relatives and stuff. You know, it's not for me at this point. Right. Unfortunately, they moved last year to a downtown Phoenix hotel. So I don't know what the vibe is. And I haven't gone the last couple of years. Um, the former site of both Contact in the Desert uh, and the former site of the International UFO Congress were fantastic, and the speakers were fantastic, and the the UFO Con was 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 great, you know, certain respects. So top three from you know right right to left, but I don't know what the new venues are like. Yeah, well, I don't think they know what they're like because they haven't had a venue in a year and a half with everything being shut down. So I mean, contact in the desert this year did everything virtually. Um, and I know they had some technical issues at the start of that. I don't know how that eventually all turned out, but we had a couple people on the podcast that were actually presenters. And uh, Michelle was like, you know, we should ask them about this because I have a question about one of the uh, presentations or one of the places you did a presentation at. And that was the Engineers Club of Dayton. You had made, <laughs> okay, see, there's the laugh. I knew there's there's got to be something here because you had made mention of it in your bio, and it uh, you said that the place was loaded with former 
intelligence personnel. And then you had put yikes <laughs> afterwards. I was like, okay, this has got to be a great story to tell. So you got to tell us about your experience at a engineers club full of former military intelligence people. How that go and what happened? Well, I have had um, three distinct encounters, maybe four now, with men in black. And so I make it a joke. And before every presentation, especially in the local area, because we have Wright-Patterson Air Force Base, and you can imagine there's a lot of sensitive work done. And oh, yeah. you know, FTD is just you know filled with those people who have that designation. And there's other organizations that do also. So uh, generally, what I, and, and uh, pretty much every presentation that I do, I'll say, okay, for those people who, who want to be honest with me, how many current or former intelligence officers or operatives do I have in the audience today? I've never had a presentation where at least one hand didn't go up. And in some cases, I'll look at the, the, the guys that I can tell I'm resonating with, mm-hmm. and I'll, 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 I'll look at them and I'll go, I'm doing all your work for you, aren't I? <laughs> and the guys that generally shake their head like, you, you are, man. And they'll say, keep it up. <laughs> so here I am at the Dayton Engineering Club. And you can imagine I'm literally just a few miles away from my Patterson. So I do that joke. I go, okay, how many intelligence officers uh, do I have? And unbeknownst to me, I got there a half hour earlier and I was sitting there with a table of about eight guys that had invited me to their table and they were just peppering me with questions. So I said, okay, how many intelligence officers do I have? More than 50% of the room. There were like 50 people in the room. And every hand at the table I had been sitting at went up. Afterwards, one of the guys who was leading the discussion at the table, he said, I just want to let you know, I'm the former director of the former technology organization, the FTD. So he was the head man at one time. And in 1997, uh, the Air Force put out uh, their famous time-traveling anthropomorphic dummy explanation for the Roswell case. They said what the people were seeing in 1947 were anthropomorphic test dummies that were used by the Air Force that did drops on them and impact things. Well, the problem is those were not put into service until 1952. So if they were responsible for an event that <laughs> happened five years earlier, they were clearly Time traveling, anthropomorphic test dummies. Well, it turns out that when they were doing the report and um, the senator from New Mexico was forcing the the, uh, GAO to put together this report, they contacted a man who worked in Air Force Research Laboratories, where I spent my entire career, and who held a position in Washington, D.C., down in a deep, dark vault. He turned out to be a guy that was tasked with looking at the Air Force records in Washington to, I think, was it Shift or Shrift was was a senator to answer that demand. He was in my audience. 
and came up to me and he introduced himself. He goes, I just wanted to let you know I was in your audience. I love it. I want to buy a copy of your book. And he waited to be the last person in the room with me. And he said, I need to tell you something. Well, you're not going to hear it. (laughs) But what I can share with you is he told me that he was the guy tasked to look at all the Air Force records and do it. And so he had this deep immersion in stuff that we haven't seen and that probably no, no one, nobody else is going to see. And, um, you know, I asked him a question. He gave me a double wink. So that's all I needed. So that was the cool story that, that having this guy who was in charge of ferreting out all this information, introduce himself to me and, you know, tell me a wonderful story that he was the guy and, you know, gave me some confidence in moving forward in what I was looking at. I knew that had to be a good story. You know, when, when somebody puts yikes full of military <laughs> intelligence and then dot, 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 yikes, it, you know, that's good. <laughs> yeah. So what, what a day. And yeah. They get, had gave me great questions and I'm sure those guys knew 10 times more than what I did, but all of them bought books so it was great. Now, was Obviously, that a, was that a presentation on UFOs at the engineering club? Absolutely. Or, okay. Absolutely. Okay. Oh yeah, yeah. It was it was based on my first book. You know, you being a former engineer, when I saw that, I was like, well, maybe maybe he was just giving some kind of a presentation about his former work as an engineer or whatever, and just so happened to find out there's all these into maybe they're following him around because of his research. This this will be good. Yeah, it was it was based on my first book. And okay. I, I took a lot of the stuff, the right pat aspects to it. And I, I, I told them some things they did not know. So mm. I thought it was successful on both ends. But awesome. yeah, it just blew me away when the whole freaking room isn't. <laughs> and some of them were still employed. I and mean, it wasn't just all retirees. Right. So that was kind of like, whoa. Yeah. <laughs> well, and speaking of things that they may not know or don't know, have you had a chance to look at the, the report that came out from the government last month? Of course. So what, what are your thoughts or opinions on the, the report that was released? It's, it gave me a bad case of bipolar. It's <laughs> <laughs> a good way to put it. <laughs> on, on one end, it's a giant leap forward. Because for 74 years, for 74 years, starting tomorrow, in fact, 74 years starting tomorrow, they told us it was weather balloon, swamp gas, a, a toad advertising sign, Venus, uh, stars and planets in unusual formations. You know, the, the list is, is long and sorted. And then on the 25th of June, they said, there's stuff in the skies that we really don't know about. So they, they stopped there. On, on the bad end, is they took the same position they did 74 years ago. Don't worry. We've got control of this. And it's like that Indiana Jones scene at the very end when Indiana says, "Um, so what are you going to do with this Ark of the Covenant? And uh, one government guy sitting back, the fat guy with the mustache, so government looking, he says, well, we're giving it to our top people. So Indiana Jones presses him and says, who? are you giving this to? And he, he leans back again. And he goes, 
top people. And I couldn't help but dredge up that exact scene when I finished with that nine-page report. Our top people are going to be on this. We're going to get all kinds of money. We're going to let you know what's going on. Look at folks. There are 74 years of great research, and I'm not including mine there, although if you want it, it's out there. Please don't insult me by telling me that all y'all know is what you put in that nine-page report. Right. You know, that's crap. <laughs> it's the, the number one, we know that one is a balloon, but the other 143, we don't know. <laughs> well, and, and, and the secret little it's thing crazy. that they put in there is, is I'm looking at the report right now, is that this is uh, the reporting of incidents occurring from November 2004 to March 2021. So that's the data set they are quote unquote looking at. That's not 74 years of of UFO reports and information that that's been gathered all the radar tapes and all of that. Uh no, they're just talking basically from the uh, 2004 that was the Commander Fravor incident with the Tic Tac issue. So they're starting in 2004 going to 2021. So I guess we're supposed to forget all the other 74 or whatever that would be, um, you know, 54 years of UFO history. And, and some people say even more than that, um, you know, going way back into history. So yeah, it's, it, I feel the same exact way. It, it's, it's very uh, bipolar, uh, I've had seven cold. graders write more than nine pages. <laughs> well, and then if you take off the if you take off the the cover page and the the scope and assumptions page, and then you take out the appendix page, you're only left with six pages of information. You know, and that's that's what we got. So yeah, it's 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 eye opening. It's revealing. They've been taking it serious. We kind of all know that they've been taking it serious. But what we're going to tell you is not a whole heck of a lot. If you think about it, they have 144 reports in 17 years and they're pilot reports. Colonel Carroll, my hero, was the first Air Force pilot and the first Air Force pilot of that rank to come public with a story in 55 years. The other stories are Mantel, he died. The guy over Lake Superior, he died. They all died. So they were able to collect 144 stories in such a short period of time from pilots. Imagine how many stories they would have collected in 74 years and how much more they would have known had they not told people, shut the heck up about your stories. That's right. Just, just do some math, you know, multiply 17 year periods, you know, there would have been thousands and thousands of, of Navy air force, you know, army pilot reports that they could have utilized, um, but they didn't want to hear it. Yeah. And this is where their own disinformation campaign and the ridicule of witnesses all comes back to bite them in the end, because now they even look more foolish because everybody's going, where's the, where's the other 50 years guys? Where, where, and you're only looking at pilot reports, radar reports. That's what you're telling us. Eyewitness reports of military personnel. But what about everybody else? I mean, it, it's 
I, I don't know. I'm, I'm still on the fence about the whole thing. Every time I read it, I just come away shaking my head even more. Ignore everything but the statement. There's something up there and we need to investigate it. This admission yes. is unprecedented. Yeah. So, you know, moving forward, when, when that report came out, yeah, I turned to my wife. I go, honey, looks like I'm going back to work for the Air Force. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they'll probably be knocking on your door as a as a you know researcher uh, to come in and and actually look at some things. But man, it just just disappointing. We had so you know, uh, I don't want to say hope, but it's like, man, they got to give us something. And well, it's one of those. It's like Ray, if you come back and work with us, we'll show you the tunnels. Yeah. <laughs> well, I've been in a lot of tunnels, so they're going to have to show me some new ones. But if I could just, you know, as we close here, bring back to uh, Swamp Gas, my ass. Um, what I did with Colonel Carroll is, you know, I could have summarized the book in five pages. You know, you intercepted this thing. What I wanted to do is, is every time I went back to talking to him, I dug deeper and deeper. Because he said, well, I was, you know, debriefed and, you know, he'd move on. But I wanted to know what questions you were asked. Were you satisfied with it? Um, did, did your commander or, or your whomever, did they talk to you? I wanted people to know, you know, the, the deep things that a good researcher would ask. Tell me about these devices that you use to record things. Tell me what your observations and your judgments were. You know, he talks about the infrared system he also had on and what his, the noshing that he did and the conclusions that he came to and um, things that a pilot would think about strategically, you know, what to do next. Uh, we discussed the possibility of him having uh, the uh, uh, A1 nuclear bomb on board. Those things were nuclear capable. And there were nuclear bombs at Selfridge Air Force Base. Okay. Gary will neither confirm nor deny it, but I found proof of it. And I found proof that those planes could have been nuclear armed. You know, we discuss all these possibilities. So the book is not just five minutes of proof that this guy did it and his wingman did it. I'll take you to the minute by minute, second by second, as he's chasing this UFO and his thought processes and what happens during all of the uh, debriefings and uh, what happens as, as life goes on. And the fact is, that's not the only famous case he was involved in. He was also involved in that EC-121 shoot down over the Sea of Japan when North Korea launched two MiG-21s and shot down that airplane. And the Pueblo, the ship that was being held captive, he, well, his wing was sent over there. And I have the story and the evidence that proved that he and his wingman chased those MiG-21s after the shoot down. There is oh, wow. also some other instances in his stellar career that he was involved in. All of that information is in that book. It's he was a phenomenal individual, and I've just been blessed uh, to have you know been part of this. Uh, and the fact that I was, you know, I made it, I filed this under military history on Amazon. I, you know, it's not a UFO book. It's not in the foo foo section because mm -hmm. this is military history. But the fact that it is the revelation, the first time revelation of a major figure here that that's come forward and made this admission that's history making it's history making for the air force and it's history making for the state of Michigan and for ufology. Yeah. He, he's, he's beyond credible. And, 
his credentials and his experience should be listened to. And uh, that's uh, amazing that you found him and was able to talk to him and get that information. Amazing. Ray, can you tell the listening audience again where to find your books besides uh, locating Karen at the Open Book Bookstore on Shiawassee Avenue in Fenton? Uh, the only other place to get them is on Amazon. Okay. And and the reason I published, self-published the book, it was on um, recommendations of people who already were publishing. In fact, you, you folks know Richard Dolan. You've heard of yes. Richard Dolan? Yep. Okay, mm-hmm. The UFO, he's you know famous guy, great guy. Uh, I intercepted him at a conference, told him I had this pending book and talked to him about publishing it because he has keyhole publications, I think. And he said, look, it's your first time author. And he said, I have to take 50% of net profits. So you're better off going to a place like CreateSpace and publishing it. And once you get some traction, then come back and then, you know, we can do all the things publishers do. Well, it turns out that because I was a a retired Air Force individual with a... um, security clearance, I had to go through the literary office in New York City. The Air Force has a literary office in New York City. And they just actually recently just passed a regulation that hardlined this requirement. It turns out that they only wanted to ask me one question. Do you have a publishing contract? And I told them, you know, what my security level was, what was in the book, a lot of right pad, a lot of things out there. And they said, all we want to know is, do you have a publishing contract? I said, no. They said, well, if that's the case, we're going to opt not to review your book. And they said, well, that's a good thing. And I said, how's that? They said, because we're a year behind. And if you had a publishing contract, it was going to sit in our office for a year. So from that point forward, that was their their rule. And now that's also in print. So I just decided and I talked to guys like, you know, Preston Dennett and Avon Smith and, you know, um, Stanton Friedman, all those guys that had publishers. And they said, if I was you, I think, you know, just do self-publishing. So I decided to do it. I'm in full control. And the, so if you don't find that on Amazon or in the open book, uh, you'll find it at, at one of my upcoming presentations. Awesome. And now that places are opening again, yeah. uh, you know, I've got, uh, two, uh, in October, I'm doing the Centerville Historical Society. I'm, I'm doing, uh, uh, in Centerville Library. Uh, I just have a smattering of places, you know, that I'm doing local. Um, and of course, uh, I'm doing North Carolina MUFON. Uh, I think the 9th of October in Raleigh. I'm doing North Myrtle Beach on the 14th of October in South Carolina. So there you go. And I publish things on my, web, on my, uh, Facebook page. So awesome. You know, they can find out there. Okay. And before we let you go, um, I know you've talked about a lot of your your speaking things coming up and the new book. Anything else big in the works or topics coming up that you can let us in on? Well, personally, um, my curiosity has been satisfied. And uh, I'm going to slip into retirement here fairly quickly, I think. Okay. Uh, I, you know, I would think, I would think that by the end of next year, I will not be doing any more conferences or presentations or certainly not writing any more books. Uh, my, I, there's other things I want to do. You know, I keep uh, pushing my kids to have 
my children to have children. You know, I'm looking forward to be a, a granddad. So yeah. personally, uh, I, I'm being paid very well being a 14 with 40 years experience. I don't need the money. And, yeah. and, and God bless the guys that are doing conferences every week. So that for me is on the horizon. Uh, I will mention uh, one interesting thing that, that came across a, uh, uh, a lady who's got two PhDs. Uh, she's a, a microbiology person. She's a wellness person. Um, she will do tests. She'll do a hair test and blood tests, and she'll figure out where your uh, uh, mineral deficiencies are. And, you know, she does PTSD stuff. And you know, she just does this through, through analysis of, of your physiology. Uh, and um, I've, I've been a long-term friend of hers and professional associate. Uh, for a couple of years, I was the wellness director at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. So that's one of those those organizational skill kind of things that the base commander pulled me out of the engineering ranks to develop a wellness program for the 15,000 civilians. And I was the first director of that program. So I've been associated with wellness people for many years. And she found my book and she read it and she gave me a call one day. And this lady is the smartest lady I have ever met in my life. Brilliant. And she said, I've got a story to tell you. And she winds up telling me that when she was a three-year-old, she had a visit from a wide-eyed alien in her room. And she told me that she believes they left her with gifts, one of which is her intelligence. And her children are both brilliant. Her son is a professor at a major university. He owns many patents. He's written many books. But it knocked me down when this person that I had known for many years and knew of my interest in the subject never mentioned it until she read Victoria's Secret Truth. And Victoria coming out, telling her story, I think energized her. And she said, you know, this is just a relief that I know you from this other world. And now I can tell you about this. And, you know, she'd only discuss it with her children. And she knows that her children have been gifted. So I, I just wanted to share that. And I've never shared that in any book. And I won't share her, her um, you know, yeah. who she is. But that is really nice because when Victoria and I got together on that book, we decided that we would do the book because we wanted it to be a, a, a springboard for others to come to grips with their experiences because they're not always pleasant. And then to have this brilliant person come forward and tell me the story and how it helped her. Well, you know, that I think is some subliminal reason why I did all this because I don't know why I did all this. And, and so there you have it. That's kind of my, my big reveal. Awesome. Awesome. I think we're all in the same boat. We don't know why we're doing this and why we saw what we saw, but man, look at where we're at now. We're, and, we're curious. Yeah. We're, we're, we're at that stage where it's like, what is going on? <laughs> so we're along for the ride and trying to learn. Uh, there's so much to this. We're trying to learn as much as we can and, and, meet very interesting people and get to talk to some very interesting people like yourself. So with that being said, Ray, we want to thank you for coming on and talking to us. And it was a great time. Great talk, some history changing material there. Everybody check out his books. I just can't thank you enough. So thank you very much for coming on the podcast and spending, Oh, well, another two hours. <laughs> 
So the, these talks go on for quite a while. But oh, they can go on forever. Oh, man. Yeah, exactly. So with that being said, Ray, we want to say thank you very much and uh, take care. And we will talk to you soon. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Thank you. Have a great night, Ray. You know, this whole discussion with 1966 and what happened in the Dexter area all started with watching that particular documentary on Amazon Prime. The Phenomenon yeah, by James Fox. It all started with that and saying, you know what, uh, we need to start digging into this. We didn't even know that this event had happened in our own backyard. Well, what was great about Ray is he got out there and was the boots on the ground and just went after it and found and dug all kinds of information out of all kinds of places and happened to find the one fighter pilot that was still alive that actually intercepted a UFO over Michigan. Well, and here's the thing. When you self-publish a book with a title, Swamp Gas, My Ass, and you just put it out there, you're pretty strong in your convictions as far as your feelings on a particular subject. In this particular case, the 1966 sightings in Dexter and Ann Arbor area. Well, I think that's a testament to how ridiculous the media and the government treated people during that time with the whole UFO incident. Uh, they did everything they could to bury it and make everybody feel stupid. And now Michigan seems like it is a population with amnesia about the whole UFO flap back in 1966, which had so many people up in arms about what they were seeing and what was going on in the skies. It's not so much the amnesia. I mean, we're talking 1966. A lot of these people have aged out. And also something that Raymond said, too, was that back in that time frame, you know, we were still thinking about World War II coming out of that. Now we were getting into the Cold War and people actually trusted their government back then and believed what their government said. So if the government said it was a weather balloon, if they said it was swamp gas, more than likely the people were going to believe it and go on about their day. So just just an amazing interview, and with that eyewitness testimony, it changes everything. And like Raymond said, everybody that said that they saw those UFOs in March and April of 1966, you are vindicated. Yes, and if only you had the technology then that we have now to be able to record these things. So, Michelle, before we close out, why don't you uh, let the listeners know one more time about the special appearances that Ray has set up for the near future? Well, get your calendars ready for the month of September. We have Monday, September 27th. Ray Shemansky at 6 p.m. will be at the Dexter Library in Dexter, Michigan. And for those looking for any of the books or all three of the books in the trilogy, they can be found at the Open Book Bookstore in Fenton on Shiawassee Avenue. And if you are not in the Michigan area or not near Shiawassee Avenue to get to that bookstore, you can always go to Amazon. All right. With that being said, Michelle, I think we should wrap this up. It is time to close it out for the night, folks. All right, everybody, have a good night. Stay safe. And keep your eyes to the sky.
You have been listening to the Michigan UFO Sightings and Paranormal Encounters podcast. You can reach us at mi.ufo.podcast at gmail.com. You can also find us on Twitter at mi underscore UFO and join our Facebook group by searching for Michigan UFO Sightings and Paranormal Encounters. So until next time.